This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, and to speak to everyone about a, um, I guess I can still call it a new program. We're now uh, uh, almost two years in uh, the Computational Precision Health Program uh, on the theme of transforming personal and public health through computation. Let's imagine first what computers and computing can do for healthcare. So as you heard from Dean Blake, I'm a primary care doctor, um, which means that I see patients uh, from age 18 to over 100, and I take care of all problems except for childbirth, pregnancy, and delivery. Uh, and I also don't cut, I don't do surgery, but everything else, whether it's mental health, cardiology, kidneys, bones, joints, skin, whatever I do. Okay. So um, I uh, have had patients, some of whom I've had for over 20 years now, but even with my very sickest patients, I might see them for a 20 minute visit every month for my sickest. And most of them are every three months and some are, you know, far less, right? Um, so what's happening to them in between my clinic visits? How is their pain? How is their heart failure? How is their blood pressure? I actually don't know. I don't know. And that's really quite ludicrous given all our modern day sensors that we have. So for example, on the right side of the, of the slide here, um, there are multiple sensors that this person is wearing. You know, we all have our wrist sensors. You probably have one yourself right now. Um, there was a, a new sensor from a couple of years ago that is on a pill. And if you ingested the pill, your stomach acid activates an electric current, which sends a signal to a patch that's on your skin. And then that patch sends a signal to your bone. Um, and from there, it goes up into the cloud and, uh, you know, computers process it and it comes back down. So they're all new kinds of sensors that are on our bodies, that are in our bodies, that are on our walls with nests and, you know, sensors that are out on the street. So we actually have a lot of data coming around um, both our bodies and our, and our places. And yet that data isn't really being used in healthcare. We could imagine these real-time data streams from our sensors, our steps, our mood, our heart rate can describe uh, personalized stories of how we're feeling, how our pain is, and how my congestive heart failure status is. We could imagine data coming in that helps us to predict whether grandma's going to fall before she goes into the emergency room. We can imagine smart AI on your phone that offers you personalized coaching on your phone to help you manage your chronic diseases. That's just... Uh, Healthcare, we can also imagine public health. We've all, I was going to say, come through a pandemic. I think we're still kind of in one, um, though officially, I guess it's over, but uh, there will be another pandemic, almost certainly. And data and computation, you, can, you have seen the power of it, and yet we could have done so much better. Uh, we need better data um, uh, of transmission, of uh, infection better computation to detect variants earlier, when and where hot spots are likely to break out. And of course, in a fast moving problem like a COVID um, pandemic, we also need data and computation to help us to act on individuals 
Who should we test? When should we test? How do we reach people more effectively for vaccines? How do we find people who will benefit for early treatment? And not only for individual patients, we can also use data and computation for the public health system. Where do we send our public health officials? Do we spend a lot of money and time doing contact tracing of new infections? Or do we take those people and focus on vaccine uptake, for example? And of course, uh, lots of heroes and, and workers in public health who did the best job they could. We could have helped them do better with data and computation. And I make no distinction between inpatient care, outpatient care, and public health, because as you see with the pandemic, you might get sick, go in the ICU, come back out, go home. Um, you know, it's, it's really a continuum, and we should be thinking about health of us ourselves and our communities as a continuum. And computation and data should therefore span that whole continuum so that we can think holistically about the health of ourselves and our communities. Now, we can imagine a whole lot more. Algorithms that monitor drugs, which ones are working best for whom at UCSF. I have patients that I wonder where they have cancer. Uh, and then I need, well, do I do an ultrasound? Do I do the lab test? And I do one lab test, then it comes back. Do I do another one? Or maybe I should get a, the head CT scan first, but maybe I should save that and not give them the radiation. So there's actually a whole sequencing of tests um, that's very, very stressful if you think you're having cancer. And right now we just kind of order it and we don't know maybe the, the MRI is backed up or maybe the oncology uh, visit is, is far out and maybe we should have done the test beforehand. We don't have the data to optimize. A very, very stressful time for patients. Um, I don't think we use our computers and our smartphones to support families and individuals to take care of themselves. We don't do that in their own language. And of course, algorithms can uh, both hurt and help. So here's an example I want you to keep in mind. Uh, Ziad Obermeyer, who's one of our faculty, um, looked at an insurance company that tried to figure out who they should spend more, uh, give more help to, who they should put together with a nurse so that the nurse can take better care of them so they would be healthier and they would save money, right? The insurance company wants to save money. So they looked at a, a set of patients and they said, wow, these people need a lot of care. They're very sick because they've been spending a lot of money, right? A lot of the health insurance company's money. So they said, well, these are the people we're going to assign a nurse to, to make sure that they stay well. Well, it turns out that there was a class of patients who were not doing well and did not receive nursing care because they were actually not spending a lot of the insurance company's money, but they were sick. So these are Black patients who probably didn't have access to health care or there's systemic racism within the system where we actually didn't spend money on them. It didn't mean that they were less sick. It was just that they were sick, but money wasn't spent on them. And therefore, they didn't get you know, nursing support, right? So there are social issues, personal issues, medical issues that get rolled up into data and computation. We can do so much with data, both good and bad. Um, and of course, now we have, you know, chat GPT, we can imagine a whole lot more. And in fact, I'm kind of getting tired of imagining the future, uh, because it seems to be changing day by day, right? So, um, but let's take a big step back. You know, there's been a lot of excitement, a tremendous amount of hype about computers, about healthcare, 
And the reality is, despite all that hype, is that the promise of computation for health is not fully being realized. I don't know how many of you have been to the doctor lately uh, or in the emergency room, have gone with a family member. You know, it's it's kind of like stepping back into the, uh, uh, you know, into the, the 20th century sometimes, right? Uh, our, our systems are pretty old. Uh, the way we use them is pretty old. I do have an electronic uh, medical record, um, but it basically took the paper version of a medical record and stuck it on the screen. <laughs> and then it makes me click through a bunch of things. Um, I'm not an emergency room physician, but there is a, a good study that showed that an emergency physician seeing one patient um, has to click 5,000 times to finish that one chart for that one patient. And they're usually seeing a whole bunch of patients at one time, you know, during their shift. So we're kind of collectivists. So it's, it's pretty old technology. Um, and again, for uh, my sickest patients, if I wanted to look up how to treat them, I actually go to a website called UpToDate. It's an ebook, basically. And I read a, you know, a chapter about this condition that I'm trying to learn about, but it's not connected whatsoever to this patient's data in the electronic health record, right? You would think we should be able to do that, but medicine does not do that. And I'll just leave you with the fact that we still use faxes. Yes, we still use faxes. So the promise of computation for health is certainly not being fully realized. And, and that is, um, uh, I guess we can call it an opportunity. So uh, what is computational precision health? Um, it is a new discipline. It's at the intersection of machine learning, uh, statistics, medicine, and population health. Again, no barriers between inpatient, outpatient, uh, you know, community health, public health. And um, it is a new discipline because um, machine learning coming from the computer science folks who may not um, know much about uh, the way healthcare really runs, uh, people in statistics who may not know some of the more, uh, some, some computational techniques that are more what computer scientists do and vice versa. And of course, people in medicine who maybe, you know, do um, health IT or uh, do informatics who don't really know statistics or, or computer science or machine learning. So it really is putting it all together with people who have expertise in clinical medicine, in public health, in population health. So it's a combination of bringing the data and the computational methods together to um, in, in the real world, in clinic, hospital, community and population to deliver precision interventions that serve individuals, not populations, but you, me, you know, um, each other uh, to generate improved health through better prevention, earlier detection and more effective interventions and treatments. And I, I want to make a plug here to think more broadly than big data. Um, actually, we don't hear that term very much anymore, right? But about 10 years ago, that was all the rage. It was big data, big data, big data. And it was like, oh, if we had all the data, then somehow, you know, we would, we would cure cancer. Um, and it's simply not true, of course, right? We have, you can have lots and lots and lots of data, but you need the computational methods to make sense of them. And you need to make sense of them really in the real world, not in sort of, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a pristine lab, but um, in the real world where people make errors, people don't report all their data, 
Um, there are biases like the one we discussed with the, uh, with the insurance company and how they treat patients. So in, in order to have a real impact in the world, uh, you do need to know a lot about data. You need to know a lot about computational methods. And you really, really need to know the world and to be working in the world. Um, and that's why we call uh, you know, computation precision health. We're framing it, I think, differently from some other programs that I think are, are maybe much more methodological. We are very, very methodological, but we start in the real world and, 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 um, and then layer on the methodology. So the way I think about the pillars of computational precision health, complex whole person care. I'm a primary care doc. I do not treat diseases. I treat people. It, it's, it seems you know, obvious, but it turns out that especially when we do research, we often are treating diseases. You know, we're going to treat diabetes or we're going to improve heart failure. Um, I'm going to tell you how to treat heart failure and you have to do this and this and this and this and you have to do, you know, take this med and this med. But the patient also has diabetes, also has renal failure, also has, you know, um, asthma. Uh, and, and so if you, if you solve for treating one disease, that may actually be the wrong answer for the whole patient. Um, so CPH is very much always thinking about the holistic care of the whole person in the context of their other diseases and in the context of their life. It doesn't help to say that this person should take this medication, which is not covered by their insurance. Just an obvious you know, example there, right? So it is very important that we think about the, the, the whole person. CPH also really holds AI as being augmented intelligence that the computer is, is not and should not and don't care to be uh, make it the smartest doc in the room or their smartest nurse in the room. Um, it just needs to help every clinician be better every day. Um, and actually we can replace clinician. It, it should help every person be better every day, whether it's you taking care of your own asthma, whether it's you know, families taking care of themselves, whether it's a nurse, a social worker, you know, a specialist. Um, really, we need to augment the intelligence, um, and I would say um, not augment our humanity, but but enable us to have, you know, to bring our whole humanity to care. That's that's what I think computers should do, and and that's how I think about AI as augmented intelligence. And to think about it, not just serving doctors, you know, really, it's the whole care team, which includes patients and public health. I've talked about applications to real world settings. That's super important that we're embedded in the real world within and also beyond the walls of the hospital and clinic. This is about health. It's not about health care. Health care is kind of like, you know, uh, people who are trained to provide care to patients, right? That's sort of health care. Um, we're really more interested in health, which is our personal uh, states or our health states or mental health states. Uh, and then um, a, a number of people, healthcare personnel, ourselves, our families, our community, you know, uh, create and, and, and maintain um, our, our health state. So um, complex whole person care, augmented intelligence, precision community health, we really do try um, in all our work to keep those three pillars in mind, um, because what we really want to do is to transform personal and public health through computation. And we're doing this not only to improve the health of some people, but it's really critical that we improve the health for all people, including people and communities who in the past and the present have too often been left behind by the health system. And we can use computation uh, to um, counter some of the biases 
that are in the health system and in ourselves. Um, uh, but we need to be attuned to them and we need to see them and, um, and acknowledge them and then, and, then, uh, and then mitigate them. So the CPH program started about um, 18 months ago. Um, I'm a co-director from the UCSF side. Uh, my research is in clinical trial data sharing, mobile health and primary care. My co-director, Maya Peterson, professor of biostatistics from Berkeley. Her expertise is in causal inference and statistics, uh, and her application area is HIV uh, and global health. And for the last couple of years, um, pandemics of a certain virus that we all that we all know and don't love. Um, the origin um, of, of, uh, of the CPH program really came from some, uh, some really forward thinking from the chancellors of UCSF, Sam Hoggard and Chancellor Carol Christ from UC Berkeley. And they looked at each other across the bay or we looked at each other across the bay and said, hmm, what do you have that I don't have? <laughs> and what if we partnered? Um, so, uh, it became obvious that they have computer science and statistics, and we have a, a health system and an academic medical center. Uh, and so we formed a working group that identified computational precision health as something we should work towards and build a PhD program around. In the fall of 2021, an anonymous donor very generously gave us $50 million and committed us to raise another $100 million to, uh, to launch this program uh, to endow faculty, to endow student positions, uh, and, and really to, to bring into, into, um, uh, to life this idea that Berkeley and UCSF can really put our best together, uh, for something that, that, um, is, is really transformational. So by spring of 2022, we had hired three new endowed faculty. Um, super excited about them. Two of them have been here a year now. One is starting this year. She took a, a sabbatical, a, a postdoc year out. We uh, enrolled a class of designated emphasis students, which are like PhD minors, and I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, we are in the midst of hiring our fourth uh, endowed faculty member. We are about to hire an executive director. And this fall, we will welcome our very first class of seven PhD students in computational precision health. And that is super, super exciting. So we're looking forward to a world-leading program uh, as you say, as you see here, a pipeline from innovation to impact that I will talk about. But I do want to emphasize why this program is so different. First, why is it a partnership with UCSF and Berkeley? UCSF um, is, of course, a, a, a renowned healthcare institution. It has uh, top expertise, obviously, in clinical care and in clinical research. We're actually quite... Uh, you know, notorious in some sense for in medical informatics, we created really the first electronic health record. It's called STORE, the summary time-oriented record in the 1970s. And, and what it was basically was all your lab values got stored in the database. And that was very innovative at the time. Uh, but it was the first, you know, first electronic health record. And then it stored things like your medications, uh, your problems, uh, so it really was your, you know, your electronic health record. Fast forward, uh, we are now uh, one of the, the top um, uh, places for health data science. Through the Baker Institute, we have something called the Information Commons, where we have the electronic health record data from 3.8 million UCSF patients going all the way back into the 1980s. We have it all in one database. It's de-identified notes, radiology, genomics, cleaned and ready for computation. 
which um, sounds trivial, but that's really, really important that the data is all there, that you can then go and, and work on it and, um, and, and compute on it. Uh, not only UCSF, but uh, we also have the UC-wide health data warehouse on over 7 million patients from all five UC medical campuses since 2012. And now we have UC Riverside coming on, uh, UC Merced, sorry, coming on, uh, on board as well. Um, and that is the largest collection of, um, uh, of health data across a academic medical centers. I think Texas may be the other, uh, the other one that's even close to us. So um, we really have a very large representation of patients from all across California. Of course, we are a, a state institution and, and we have a duty to our, our state. Um, and so having this kind of data uh, of our patients across the state that's ready for analysis and computation is something that's super, super important. Um, one of the other things that makes UCSF really special for this kind of program is that we have a close collaboration with the health system. So uh, UCSF is, you can kind of think of it as there's campus, which is faculty and students and, you know, um, uh, that, you know, sort of the academic side. Uh, PhD programs, master's programs, uh, medical school, and then there's the health system called UCSF Health, and that's just a hospital that is billions and billions of dollars where we, you know, take care of real patients and collect insurance money and, and that kind of, it's a business, it's a business. And it's really important that the two sides work together because as you build out, let's say your um, AI uh, algorithm and you want to test it in the real world, you need to work with the health system because they are the real world. And sometimes it's really, really hard to do that. At UCSF, we are building a very strong partnership on top of an already strong partnership um, so that you can actually deploy your solutions uh, in the real world. And you can work with doctors in the real world and understand their real world problems and design real world solutions. Often in computer science, um, you find what's called a toy problem or a toy example, because if you don't have access to the health system and you can't really talk to doctors and you can't really get your solution into the medical record, well, what do you do? You make a toy problem and you solve the toy example and you publish, right? Um, so that's not what we do here. Um, we really are embedded in the real world. And that's a, a major distinction with some of our peer uh, institutions that, that you may have heard of. Now, um, of course, UC Berkeley is also great. They are number one in computing, number two in statistics. There's a new college of data science. Um, there are complementary disciplines, public health, engineering, operations, research, econ, business. We have people from all of those disciplines actually in computational precision health because health touches practically everything about the way, you know, our, our, our societies run and, and our societies affect us as well. So Berkeley brings a huge breadth and a huge depth that complements the, um, the sort of focus on health that UCSF has. So um, this cross-campus vision is powerful and it combines a complementary strengths to bring the brilliant computational scientists that are on both campuses and brilliant health scientists, more on our side, but also on their side, to close the gap in this promise of computation for health, okay? Neither brilliant groups of people can do it themselves. We need to bring them together and we bring them together in an intentional joint community so that we can work with each other. And that's why it's a joint program that spans both campus. Um, we have over 50 faculty from UCSF and Berkeley. You see the uh, clinical domains that we 
have faculty in right now. There are others too, but these are the these are the, the main you know clinical areas that that we have represented. And then computationally, you see we have um, people in machine learning, computer vision, human computer interaction, so on and so forth. And the people who are over here are also over there. So it's not like it's one group of people and one group of people. It's often people who are doing uh, two things, right? So I am uh, primary care, electronic health records and digital health. And on the right side, I am data sharing and privacy primarily, uh, but do a number of the other stuff as well. Okay. So that's really what we're trying to find is people who have that sort of, you know, cross perspective. And that's what we're trying to train. So if you're interested in our program, you come in for a PhD or a DE program, we're trying to make you almost ambassadors between two cultures. Um, the health people really kind of think and talk differently from the computing people, which actually honestly talk differently than the engineering people even, right? So there's a lot of cultural fluency that's needed. And that's part of what we're trying to do, because if you, if you can do that, then you can identify problems better. You can identify solutions better. And you can have the buy-in of people to actually test your solutions. And then since they don't, won't work the first time, uh, people have trust enough in you to say, okay, well, let's go and do it again and let's do better. Okay. So it, it takes, it takes a lot of, um, uh, you know, yeah, cultural competency, cultural fluency across these disciplines uh, to, uh, to be the most effective. So in addition to the existing faculty at Berkeley and UCSF, um, I mentioned that we have hired three new faculty, and these are the people who are hired directly into computational precision health due to our, our generous donor who, who've endowed these positions. Um, so um, Ahmed Allah, who develops AI and ML, ML machine learning, uh, models for diagnosis and prognostic predictions for primarily cardiovascular disease. Um, Irene Chen, who's joining us this July um, after her year at Microsoft Research, she's interested in fair machine learning um, to make sure that these algorithms are not biased, uh, and then also to, to be able to project out what their disease states and trajectories are. Adam Yala um, focuses on machine learning methods to leverage all available data, and here it's really at this multimodal data. It's not just text data or EHR data or numbers, it's images. And it's not just images from your CT scan, but it's also pathology. So it's called multimodal data to improve cancer screening and treatment. So um, these are our primary uh, faculty. Our graduate program, let me take just a, a, a little bit here just to uh, describe what it is for those of you who are interested in, uh, in getting graduate training with us. We have a PhD program. We do not have a master's program at this time. You do not need a master's to apply to our PhD program. We are intentionally um, open to people from different backgrounds. We uh, welcome people who have a strong computational background with some health. We're open to people who have a strong health background who have some computation. Uh, we don't expect people to come in having done, you know, a lot of healthcare, a lot of biology, and a lot of computing, right? That's, that's, the, that's not what we expect coming in. That's what we want you to have going out. So the guiding principle for uh, our graduate program is that you will learn by tackling real-world problems in small multidisciplinary teams. This is really uh, uh, taking off the sort of problem-based learning approach that we are familiar with in medical school. Uh, and it's a flexible curriculum because, number one, because it's a fast-moving field. People come from very different directions, and they're going to be going to different places. Some people might want to 
focus on public health, for example, and others might want to do human-computer interaction of, you know, decision support systems in the ICU, right? So they don't, they shouldn't be taking the same courses. So we we have um, advisors who will guide you to uh, take the appropriate curriculum uh, as you work out your, your career goals. The uh, overall program is uh, five years of what we call a normative time to graduation. The first two is academic coursework that will be at both UC Berkeley and, and UCSF, followed by three years of your dissertation research in the lab of a uh, CPH faculty member. And again, there are about uh, over 55 to choose from. The courses as listed here, it's really quite light in a sense. Um, the Really the, the main uh, cornerstone is the cornerstone class. It's a two semester series. And here I'll just describe them as semesters because Berkeley is on the semester system. UCSF is on the quarter system, but you know we can we can do the math um, and and and, uh, and map them. But the cornerstone course is a, a, a year long uh, series uh, of problem based learning where you are going to learn the fundamental uh, foundational methods in in computational uh, precision health. They're based around three um, disease conditions. The first. Um, uh, quarter is going to be on oncology. The second one is centered around cardiovascular health. And the third one is centered around metabolic health, diabetes, for example. But really, the methods are, you know, are disease agnostic, right? You can apply them to to any disease. In the second year, there is a practicum uh, where students will be exposed in the real world. So you will be going out and you will be seeing you know, the way that medicine really works. And you really have to just see it viscerally to get a sense of how the world works. Um, Sometimes the chaos, you know, the the dedication that people bring, some of the perverse incentives that we have in healthcare, there's nothing uh, that can replace really going out to see it. Of course, there's uh, seminars, lectures, journal clubs, work in process, progress, uh, rotations, the first year you will be rotating uh, with faculty at Berkeley and, as, and at UCSF so that you can select someone who will be your dissertation advisor. So once you select that person, work with them, usually by the second year, work with them. And then what you do is you decide on your dissertation topic and then you um, uh, take what is called your qualifying exam at the end of your second year where you will present a proposal about what your dissertation is going to be. Um, generally, before you get to your quals at the end of your second year, you've taken some other foundational courses and some elective courses, and you see sort of the, the range here, um, and it's really going to be customized to what people are interested in pursuing. We expect that people who come into the program will change what they like, because I think many students, it's hard to come in and really have a good exposure to some of the you know advanced computing, or conversely, um, many people come in and don't really know what healthcare is like. We had a visit day with our admitted students earlier this year, and I showed them the electronic health record. Um, I think three of the uh, 10 people in the room had done research projects with electronic health records. They had no idea what the EHR actually looks like. Um, and they also didn't know how it was really used. And one of them sat there and said, oh my, I've been using this data and I have no idea. I am, I realize now I had no idea what I was working with. So that's kind of what CPH brings you. You are going to know. We're going to make sure you know. 
So that's the, the graduate training uh, coursework, a lot of flexibility. If you're interested in the designated emphasis, this is like a PhD minor. So maybe you're taking computer science at, uh, at, at Berkeley, or maybe you're taking uh, bioengineering at UCSF or biomedical informatics at UCSF. Um, you can uh, get into that, let's say the BMI program, biomedical informatics, and then you could minor in CPH. So that's called a designated emphasis. It means you take a few CPH courses and you have a CPH faculty member who sits on your dissertation team, okay? So your dissertation advisor will be from your original program, BMI, bioengineering, whatever it is, um, but a CPH faculty member would sort of like, you know, be there with you um, and sort of, you know, infuse some of the, uh, the fundamentals uh, and the methods of computational precision help. The DE uh, is a really interesting opportunity um, for people who maybe aren't fully into computation and health, but are sort of adjacent. Um, to get this flavor is, is I think, a really, uh, a really a great opportunity. We have an interdisciplinary and inter-campus community with people from statistics. Let's see, um, I think people from engineering, uh, people from, uh, you know, basic sciences. Uh, and it's a cross-campus uh, opportunity, right? Uh, a, a mix of, of intellects. Uh, and then those who are, uh, especially those at, at Berkeley, um, are able to, you know, partake of the clinical care environment here at UCSF. So that's uh, that's been uh, quite exciting for students who I think might have taken CPH if it existed, you know, but now they're they're further on in statistics or whatever. Uh, they've really uh, enjoyed uh, being part of our program. You might think, well, if I became a CPH student, like what what does it what does it mean? What is a CPH dissertation? Um, that is something that, again, is quite broad in terms of what students might want to do in consultation with their advisor, with their dissertation advisor. And uh, we think these are sort of, this is the, the three, you know, again, three pillars, the paradigm, precision problem formulation, precision solution, and precision deployment. Problem formulation um, it doesn't matter which PhD program you go to. It almost, it actually doesn't even matter if you're going to, into a PhD program. I think the most challenging thing in science, I think I can say it's the most challenging thing in science is asking the right question. That's, it's actually really, really hard to ask the right question. And by right question, I don't, I don't mean just sort of like, you know, the topic area, but to precisely formulate the problem in the right way that captures and represents the problems that really matter to people in the world. Not, not just to your methodology or to you or to advisor, right? Um, but you need to be in the real world enough so that you, you know what matters to the people who are actually doing the work and that you formulate the problem in such a way that you can solve it computationally and that you answer something that somebody really cares what the answer is, okay? So an example would be there are a lot of machine learning, and I'm sure you've heard of them, is where they say, well, it can predict whether the patient is going to go to the ICU, <laughs> okay, or predict whether the patient is going to uh, go to the emergency room, okay. So let's say that I got a, pre a prediction like that, okay. I'm sitting here, I'm taking care of my patient, know them pretty well. Um, the electronic medical record, you know, very confusing to use, but up pops a prediction, okay? And it says my patient has a 57% chance of needing to go to the emergency room, okay? 
And I, I would probably say, well, you know, I kind of had a 50% chance that they were going to go to the emergency room. So is the computer more accurate than me? Um, do I really care if it's a little bit more accurate than me? Because I'm not going to do anything, maybe, unless, you know, their risk is lower than 20%. So if it's 50%, my estimate, or the computer's prediction of 57%, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And so it doesn't matter how accurate, if you're asking the wrong question, that's not really useful to me. Um, you know, uh, the question there really is, what is the threshold for sending someone to the emergency room? And tell me whether the person crosses the threshold. Right. And the threshold is dependent on my risk tolerance. Another physician may have a different risk tolerance. It depends on the patient's risk tolerance. Um, it depends on, of course, their medical condition. Right. So that's a kind of dynamic problem where you're not just asking what is the risk. Right. But you're really thinking carefully. What is it that's really what is the problem? OK, so formulating the precise problem, formulating the solution. It isn't, oh, out of a thousand patients like yours you know, 57% of them go to the ER. It's like, I don't care about the population. I want to know this person, right? And then don't tell me it's 57. Uh, if, if you say, well, you know, I think it's 57, but it could be 20 or it could be 82. That's not very helpful, right? But do tell me if you think it's 57 and, it's, and, and your range of uncertainty is, you know, 56 to 58, right? So I do want your uncertainty. Uh, I do want um, uh, a, an individualized estimate. Uh, but it should answer the right question. And then, of course, these things need to be deployed in the real world. Maybe you deployed in the real world and it actually doesn't work because the real world is different from your test environment. Maybe it worked and it works and it will work. But then two years later, it stops working because maybe the patient population has changed. Maybe the way that we take care of patients uh, means that they don't need to go to the emergency room because we do better at keeping them out of the emergency room. So really you need to think, okay, how is this thing going to work in the real world? As a PhD student, you don't need to do all of that. You don't need to be the one to um, develop the method, build the solution, implement it into the health system and run a randomized trial, right? We're not expecting that at all, but you really should know all the steps. And, and the reason for that is because if you don't know all the steps, you know, you're, you're going to solve the problem in a way that's not eventually going to result in impact. So um, uh, this slide, I, I think you can read it, and even if you can, it doesn't matter because it's really the big picture that I want to show. It's the it, what we call the innovation to impact pipeline. So innovation's on the bottom, um, and the, the uh, blue dotted box is what is within computational precision health what we consider the scope of our, our, of our work. And you will see that biomedical and health discoveries actually um, outside of that box. So CPH is, you know, we're not primarily about finding out the explanation for diseases. We're not here to discover, quote unquote, the cure for cancer or the mechanistic underpinnings of a particular disease. That is not our primary focus. We do have people who do that um, because as you treat people, you can get insights about mechanism, but we're not fundamentally about mechanism. Those are people like in uh, the Baker Institute, you know, many other parts of, uh, of UCSF and Berkeley are focused on discovery. We're, we're more up in the hair space where we have innovation. Uh, again, it's about treatment, diagnosis, um, and so forth. 
And then as we build something out, we need to test it in the world with a proof of concept. And if it passes a proof of concept, then we need to generate evidence about whether it really works or not, and whether it's fair, and whether it's uh, safe. Uh, and usually what happens in, in, for example, if you have a drug and you develop it and pharma goes and runs a large study, uh, is they generate what's called a pivotal study. The pivotal study is after you've got enough evidence and then you do that sort of definitive research study that shows that the intervention improves something, right? Um, it's the study that generates the evidence that changes the standard of care. So if you change the standard of care, then you will have impact. If you don't change the standard of care, then, you know, people might use it, but it's, it's not going to have that broad impact that you want. Okay. So the pivotal study is actually very important and then it needs to get disseminated. One of our insights is that, you know, a pivotal study is not enough. There are pivotal studies out there that people don't actually act on. And then there are studies that are not pivotal that people just go and do it, even though the evidence isn't very strong. So what we have is the red box, which is, um, you know, um, orthogonal to the blue box. And that's one that's really thinking about organizational systems. So healthcare is an incredibly complicated part of our, uh, of our society and, and of our economy. And even if you have the evidence that you should do something, let's say if some physicians or some companies benefit from doing things the old way, it's going to be hard to change, right? Um, or if it's, a, if it's a, um, an intervention that needs people who are trained differently, who are organizing different teams, who are paid differently, it's going to be hard to change. And so organizational innovation is actually really, really important. And also, as we develop these digital technologies, they need to get approved by the FDA, and then they need to get marketed, and then the health system needs to know how to buy them. So the digital marketplace is actually quite immature. Um, and sometimes it's because people produce a solution that actually nobody wants. Okay. Um, and so we have, uh, we have uh, some faculty who are members of the Haas School of Business at Berkeley. So we do work with our health system and biz school and econ colleagues to be thinking all along the innovation impact pipeline, something called product market fit. If you make this as a product, is there a market for it? Like, is anybody going to want this? Okay. What kind of evidence would somebody want to use this intervention or to buy it? What kind of evidence is the FDA going to want to prove that it is safe? What kind of evidence and how would you generate the evidence where you could convince a health system, number one, to use by your, your, your innovation? And then once they implement it, how would they make sure that it continues to perform well, okay? So um, those are the parts of uh, the, the sort of impact pipeline that CPH focuses on, the innovation of the interventions, the methods to generate evidence without having to wait, like run a randomized trial for five years, that's not going to generate evidence in, in at all a timely fashion, right? So there are a lot of new machine learning methods, causal inference methods, um, a lot of adaptive study designs, that generate next generation evidence. And that's critical, absolutely critical to how we um, prove and continue to show the value of our work. We need uh, next generation of computational health infrastructure. 
because we don't just use today's technology, we need tomorrow's technologies as well. So I'm just gonna uh, run through some clinical impact area examples, give you a little bit more flavor for um, just concretely what we do. So first heart disease, uh, right now, as you know, lifestyle, behavior, and stress are strong contributors to heart disease. But I know when patients come to see me uh, for their blood pressure control, they just give me little scraps of paper and they write down, you know, they scribble their, their, um, uh, their blood pressure readings, uh, sometimes literally on a napkin. One out of four patients admitted with congestive heart failure bounce back within 30 days. 25% uh, of those are probably preventable. We just don't know which ones. And there have been number, multiple, multiple studies to prevent readmission. And now if we could apply computation, these are the sorts of things that we can do. So get your creative juices going. We could build um, sort of mathematical models of uh, the patient's cardiovascular system, okay? And we could use, again, multimodal data, not just text data, not just number data, but echo data, and maybe your physical activity or your sleep data, right? We can um, work with individual patients to see if we gave them this blood pressure medicine, how did they do, and predict for this patient what sets of interventions they should do. Maybe you take this blood pressure medicine and you increase activity this much and you reduce your alcohol intake that much and you're going to be fine, okay? Different solution for somebody else, but we should be customizing things. Ahmed Allah works in this area. He works on something called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEF-PEF. Um, that is an emerging uh, type of heart failure that we don't know very much about, but actually causes a lot of illness. Uh, so he's taking um, echocardiograph data. You can see an echo there, um, along with um, uh, electronic health record data. And he's building that model, that sort of in silico, you know, inside your computer model about the heart, your heart, and then seeing, well, if I gave you this drug, what would happen? Okay. So he's doing both diagnosis and treatment uh, in silico so that we don't have to like cut out a heart and, and test it, but just, you know, uh, sort of computationally do experiments. In cancer, right now we're screening women every year uh, for a mammogram. I, I guess just today came out that we're supposed to start at age 40. I talked a little bit about cancer workup processes being of high patient burden and, and, uh, and anxiety. Um, and those who do get their cancer treated, often the side effects are, are really pretty bad. I, I think you all know that. But it's really quite unpredictable which side effects and how bad they might be. So it's really hard to make a decision about, do I take this chemo? Do I not? Um, and, and right now we kind of just guess, but um, there are all, all kinds of things we can do with computation. We can have better screening. Um, we can, as, as I said, have better um, sequencing of studies. Um, and it would be, I would love to be able to sit down with the patient and say, okay, if we did this thing, if we did, you know, resection and the radiation and chemo, this is your likely outcome for you. And then we can play with the scenario and say, well, what if we didn't do this? Or what if we did that? That would be really great. Customize to the patient. I know oncologists do this. Um, they have it in their head as a primary care doc. I don't have access to that. And so I, I can't do that kind of counseling, whereas often my patients really do want to know what, what I think. Um, so computing could help us there. This is the area that uh, Professor um, Yala works on. Um, he is looking at uh, customizing the screening interval for breast cancer. So here you see a mammogram at year zero, there's a, a little spot. And in year five, there is a bigger spot. 
So this is a patient who you might want to screen more frequently so that you catch it, you know, when, when it when when it's really apparent. Um, whereas another uh, a woman may be that the mammogram had features that show that it's a very low risk. Um, and so this person can wait till two and a half, and maybe this person can wait till three and a half. Okay, which is great because then there's less radiation exposure, there's less hassle coming in. Um, you know, overall lower utilization, and and, and that's 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 all good. Um, so um, Professor Yala used a, a, a deep learning model uh, for this. The prior state of the art had an accuracy of 0.62. It's called area under the curve, but just think that an area under the curve that's closer to eight is good. You know, five means it doesn't, you know, it's really not good at all. So 0.62 is not all that great. That was the state of the art before. Um, and, and Professor Yale got it up, you know, over the threshold of 0.75 or 0.8. And in fact, um, did some just really, and, and this is sort of the CPH thing, is that he actually deployed this in multiple countries around the world and showed that the performance of the algorithm um, was good. In fact, you know, it, it, it sort of kept going up uh, to, to 0.82 even, but that it was above threshold in different populations who have different prevalence of breast cancer, different um, expertise, right, uh, in mammograms, um, different biases and, and different um, structural uh, differences in, in who comes, who gets screened, um, and, and who gets follow-up. So um, this is, is very impressive, impressive work, and I, I think it really exemplifies the, the CPH approach. Finally, uh, diabetes, um, an incredibly prevalent disease. Over 100 million Americans have diabetes or pre-diabetes, and 80% of them don't even know it. What do we do with diabetes? We say, you know, just cut down on sugar. <laughs> really not very useful uh, information for, for most people. It would be wonderful if we could help everyone understand how their sugar metabolism changes based on the foods that they eat. And, you know, different people from different cultures eat different foods. So you can't just sort of do the basic American, you know, diet, right? Uh, and how you exercise. Different people respond differently to exercise or to sleep. And right now we don't have any of that, right? We just tell, tell the patient, go exercise, you know, go to nutrition to learn how to eat better foods. Um, uh, but we, we could actually build a model of the patient's glucose response um, so that we can recommend the best treatment. We can use smartphones to guide self-management um, to, you know, help you support your healthy behavior, like, you know, go exercise or stop smoking, right? There's so much that, that we can do uh, that we aren't doing now. So one of my projects is to uh, um, bring in, this is a, the Freestyle Libra continuous glucose monitor. I have no uh, relationship to, to uh, Abbott, which makes this thing, but it, it's a little patch on your arm that actually you wear for two weeks and it actually senses your blood glucose um, minute by minute. And so you can eat a pizza and learn, does your sugar go up with pizza for you? If you ate a yogurt, what happens? If you go for a run, what happens? If you sleep in, what happens? We need to build algorithms that help us figure this out. We need to build these algorithms for individual people. Um, and right now we don't have a, a, um, uh, an easy environment to do that. Most of the people, most of the researchers who do this will build, as we call it, the whole stack 
They will build the sensor integration, the data collection, the computational platform. They run their own algorithms, build their own algorithms. And in the end, they will come up with something that they'll publish on. Maybe they'll get into the Washington Post. But then, then what? Well, this algorithm may or may not work in the real world. So really, the next step is to put it in the real world. But you know, they didn't build it in the real world. So now when you go to the real world and say, hey, can I stick it in your health system? You know, the health IT people are gonna go, well, no. <laughs> you know, it's not built to, to plug into our stuff. Um, or maybe we'll build it in, but we're gonna need you know, lots of money and, and staff to do that. And then if you build it in and it doesn't work, you have to go back and tweak it. You know, it takes a long time to make that cycle to go from development to operations. Right now it takes months with the kind of platform that we're building, open source platforms, wanna take that down to days uh, so that we can really you know, intensify that, that cycle and bring uh, solutions to, to care much more quickly. So I uh, can't end without talking about uh, ChatGPT and other generative AI. Um, these are large language models. You know, they go and they, they talk and write poems for you and things like that. So how does our CPH picture get updated with generative AI? Um, the previous picture really was just looking at improved health. And now I've added in the bottom right here, improved health care, because these conversational agents, um, I think can, they can explain to you <laughs> what your lab results are. They can give you a, maybe your, your summary of your surgery tailored to your educational level, right? You know, which actually you can say, uh, you know, summarize this paper uh, like you would to a 12 year old, right? Uh, or please <clears throat> summarize this in Spanish. And it can actually do translation, right? So I think, I think we're going to, you know, we can see um, better outreach in terms of uh, engagement with patients, um, with, um, you know, messages from, uh, from, from, your, uh, from, from your health system, for example. Um, I think there are ways for, the, uh, for these technologies to scour the electronic health record and help me get a pretty quick sense of what's going on with one of my patients. Right now, it takes a lot of clicks to do that. Um, I think LLMs uh, can, can help, large language models can help. And it's really quite scary. A lot of these large language models can actually do medical diagnosis. Uh, sometimes they are really incredibly good at it. And sometimes they are incredibly bad. And what's really scary about them is that you can't really predict when they're going to fail and fail catastrophically or when or why. We just don't understand that. So very, very powerful, but they can also really just, you know, just all of a sudden just don't, you know, just can't do anything, uh, which is which is really, um, really uh, something that we need to guard against. And so I think in this era of generative AI, it highlights the importance of um, equity, fairness, privacy, safety, features that were super important even before generative AI. I think is now doubly, triply important because generative AI generates uh, language in a way that is like a human. And as humans, we are wired to respond to other humans. <laughs> but when the other entity talks and interacts like a human but isn't, I think there are tremendous, tremendous risks. 
Healthcare is 20% of our GDP. These technologies are going to be forming connections, uh, almost emotional connections with people because they are so human-like. And it's patients who are ill, people who are ill, who are at their most vulnerable. So I think it's, it's an ethical responsibility for all of us working in computation to not focus only on the cool stuff and the numbers and the compute and all that, uh, but really it's, a, it's about people and it's about how we, um, how we help people and how we uh, increase their, their health and their well-being and have to do it in a way that, that we respect and honor all people. Um, and so equity, fairness, privacy, safety, those are not afterthoughts. They are, they're really, really central. And that is part of what our program is, that, that we do have those, um, uh, you know, those uh, uh, precepts really central to what we do. Uh, so that's what we do here at CPH. We train the next generation. We need this next generation. Uh, there's so, so much opportunity to do good um, and, uh, and a lot of risk that we need people who really are trained at this intersection uh, to responsibly uh, take forward uh, the sort of the promise of computation. And so, um, you know, CPH is a, a special program that reflects a grand vision of the chancellors of Berkeley and UCSF. It's been a fantastic partnership, expected to continue to be so. Um, here's the website that you can come and click on it. So we will be having uh, another, obviously, um, uh, cycle of admissions starting in the fall and also a uh, designated emphasis for those of you who are already in a PhD program here. If you're a year or more before your quals, you can also think about applying for the designated emphasis. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.